Hello and welcome to episode five of the FGEM podcast. Today's discussion is on the topic of gender-based violence and victim support services. Um, this is the first of three episodes we're going to do on the topic. Today we're going to focus on some basics and we also have a special guest, Tina Sicker, who is a reader in technoscience and intersectional justice at uh, the University of Newcastle. So welcome, Tina. And we also have on the session today my lovely co-host, Violet. Hi, Violet. Hey there. Hello, everyone. <laughs> uh, so over to you, Tina, if you want to just introduce yourself. Yeah. Um, like you said, I'm a reader in technoscience and intersectional justice at Newcastle University in the School of Arts and Cultures. And I do a lot of work around uh, critical science studies, looking at health and the environment. And then also um, on the intersectional justice side, I do work in gender-based violence and sexual ethics and, um, you know, uh, studies around consent. And uh, yeah, that's sort of my my area of research, but I'm happy to talk to both of you today. So you're also a member of FGEN. I am, yes. Which is the, obviously everybody listening to this podcast should know what FGEN is, the <laughs> Feminist Gender Equality Network. So how did you, how did you get involved with FGEN? What was it that kind of got you into being a member? Yeah, I, I remember um, looking at um, and, and reading some tweets around the possibility of a network coming up um, a, a number of months ago. And I was just following that. And then I saw uh, some really, you know, some some feminist scholars that I really admire saying that they were interested. Um, you know, and Sally had put out uh, a few messages and then I just signed my name up to it and then found out uh, that some colleagues like Alison Phipps had signed up to it as well. And then I just uh, ended up uh, attending the first Zoom session and was really interested in the way things were progressing and, and the way uh, everything was structured around uh, empowering communities that that were marginalized and I was you know definitely interested in doing that so yeah yeah so you you're originally from Toronto from Vancouver from, sorry Vancouver in Canada yes prior you know prior to moving to the UK and working for Newcastle University what were you doing in Vancouver in this same kind of field yeah, my my trajectory is very sort of uh, um, academia uh, related. So I went straight through school. So I did my undergrad in communication um, at Simon Fraser University in, in Vancouver. Uh, and then I moved to Toronto, uh, to Ottawa to do my master's and then to Toronto to do my PhD in communication and culture. Uh, and then I moved back to Vancouver to do a postdoc at Simon Fraser, where I was looking at more critical science studies sort of work, but then um, started doing a little bit more work around um, gender-based violence and, and class and looking at um, sex work in the downtown east side. I was sort of interested in, in some issues around there. And then um, I taught for a little while and then um, ended up getting a, a position in Newcastle. And in 2017, I moved um, from Vancouver to Newcastle. So it was very much, um, you know, a lot of my research is focused on um, the academic study of uh, gender-based violence. And um, I'm really trying to do a little bit more activist um, and grassroots work 
and and CF Gen Network was a way for me to kind of do some of that and and yeah. Yeah, so so gender-based violence, um, you know, that's kind of the topic we're talking about. Could you just explain to those who may not be fully aware of what that means? What it, what it means and who it affects and you know and is it is it only something that women suffer from or is it men as well yeah it would be all all genders um any any construction of gender um facing violence for the reason of gender specifically so it would be something that is um based on that identity where it would be rooted in um gender would be sort of the driving factor. Uh, and it, it wouldn't really matter which gender that person identified with. And um, as a protected class, I'm looking specifically at, um, you know, intimate partner violence. I'm looking at, you know, um, just random violence. I'm looking at uh, institutional violence and structural violence as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it, um, my sort of, that's the definition, but my research um, is really focused on gender-based violence in the context of um, intimate partners. Um, and so it would be uh, definitely around around that area and how consent is negotiated and how sexual ethics are, are negotiated. And, and does this apply equally to, you know, members of LGBT community? Absolutely. Um, I think that some of the most interesting work in the area of sexual ethics and consent is around um, queer theory uh, and looking particularly around the way that we the way that we construct knowledge and and just common sense around what sex is supposed to how it's supposed to unfold what to expect um, different gender roles um, and I'm really interested in deconstructing that. And a lot of queer theory helps you to do that because it's looking at, you know, why is it the, you know, why are things the way that they are? Uh, and a lot of the, the conceptual resources I find really helpful in that area. Yeah, I mean, just, just before we did this podcast, I was just doing a little bit of research on, online just to see if I could find information on you know what kind of refugees are available to anybody who may need need those kind of services and it's really what i found was it's really difficult to understand whether any of these services are inclusive mm-hmm. you know, they, they seem to be solely targeted at, at women some of them have some information around they also include services for men and very few talk about any other minorities now i'm not i'm not sure why that is do you have any kind of understanding of to you know around some of these kind of you know the discrimination the stigma that's associated with why that might be uh my suspicion uh is is potentially i mean there's a a couple of options you know if you see uh an organization that is a support service for um, victim survivors of gender-based violence, and they say that you know they are inclusive. Um, then you don't, you're not like you're like you know inclusive of who. 
Exactly. And so you can, you know, they might say that, yes, we're, ex um, you know, we're inclusive of, of men and all identities. But I think that what has happened is that in an attempt to shield themselves from any public, uh, you know, attack, um, they will either just leave out anything um, around, um, you know, trans um victim survivors coming in or, or offering services to communities that are often stigmatized. So it's either that they are offering inclusive services, but they don't want that to be public in case they, you know, get backlash, or that they don't um, provide those services to the extent that they should. And, um, you know, that's why they just don't have it on the website. So I think that there's a lot of subterfuge that's that's happening. And it's a, a kind of calibrated thing around risk. And it's it's really quite unfortunate, because it is people who who need those services that um, are unable to access them. Yeah, I mean, just on that topic of risk, you know, we, we do, we do hear that these organisations do risk assessments. But I'm just trying to trying to understand, you know, what, what, are the, what is the what is the risk that somebody like me, you know, what risk am I? What, what risk do I represent? You know, it's very, yeah. it's very difficult to, you know, you're doing a risk assessment. Is it, is it because I'm perceived as a risk or is there maybe a potential risk to me when I go into, if I was to go into a situation like that? I mean, I, I, I kind of struggle with that because, you know, these organizations are supposed to be inclusive. We have an equality act. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, there's there's two levels. There's that you know very um, that that very you know turf, and I and I use that term because I think that it is accurate. Um, that that kind of turfy argument that um, having anyone within a space that sort of sp safe space idea that that having uh, a trans woman in a space you know, that is, quote unquote, sort of like originally meant for women, um, that there is some kind of a risk, uh, I think is unsubstantiated and outlandish and frankly, discriminatory. Um, and, you know, I, I use those words, you know, specifically, because I think that it can be really harmful. Uh, and you can see the way that it's created a a context in which a lot of hate and a lot of stigma is allowed to fester. Um, and then I think there is also the risk, the media risk, and that is something that, you know, we don't want the organization to be the focus of any public debate because it could jeopardize funding and it could, um, you know, jeopardize jobs. Uh, and that sort of thing. So I think there is that, you know, that two level risk that they're probably looking at and, and both of which I think are, are, you know, just ridiculous. And, you know, I wish that they weren't factors that organizations have to deal with. Yeah. Are the, are the same kind of stereotypes applied to other minorities? Absolutely. Um, I think that racialized um, uh, groups as well in the past, um, you know, have had, uh, really a, a lot of difficulty in um, accessing services, whether it's an issue of uh, geographically where the services are located or sort of feeling like their particular cultural values are not represented or they can't really 
find resonances within those institutions. They just feel like it's not for them. And that's one way in which institutions can be racialized. Um, and then they can also be uh, transphobic structurally because if, if, if you're not feeling that you are welcome in those spaces, then, then people are not gonna access them. And so sometimes just by default, you're left out of those um, institutions and, and from, from those services. So I think that that is a, a, a site of intersection of you know what are these organizations structurally doing to make themselves inclusive and in what ways have they been structured so that some groups feel welcome and other groups don't, whether it's by actual policy or it's just by the, the kind of culture that they have created for themselves. Yeah, I think this is really interesting about the commonality of accidental or sort of ignorance, um, not using that as an insult, just as an accurate term, um, ignorance-based um, decisions that do make things stressful for certain minorities. Like I can only speak from my own experience, but like several um, service providers for private services or sometimes NHS services um, will ask for birth sex, for example. And they're clearly asking for birth sex for a purpose of trying to weed out trans people because they usually specify that they'll say something. And this is what reminds me of what you were just saying is that they'll say, oh, we understand that your gender identity might be different or you, we understand that you may identify differently, but we need to know this verifiable, solid um, data point of your birth sex. But the thing that they are not understanding is one, that's just straight up, like if you've got a room of cis people and then you say, oh, we're proposing to put that we're going to ask for birth sex on the form. Well, all those people from their ignorance, their own experience, they'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, sure. And we'll put something in there. It's some nice text that's going to reassure the trans people because we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. But the point is that you've already made them feel uncomfortable by asking that question in the first place. And then the secondary thing, which is very frustrating, is that this is usually to make assumptions about medical care um, and support that you may or may not need. Um, but by asking for my birth sex or anyone, any trans person's birth sex, you don't know what are, you know, as far as our sex characteristics, you don't know what the state of that person's going to be. You don't know where they're going to be in their transition. You don't know what that their transition looks like or doesn't look like. So if you put me in the male buckets um, and then you, you may well assume all sorts of things about my endocrinology and my anatomy that are just wrong. And you will, it, it's, it, you know, if, 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 if you use me in a statistical analysis of males and sort of how they're affected by certain things, you know, that's going to be incorrect. Obviously like the number of trans women is very small, so it'd be a statistical um, blip. But the point is that like, it's creating this, um, ridiculous categorization process. It's not useful. Like if somebody's going to talk to me about my healthcare um, and they're going to base it on my birth sex, like what are they going to know? Like it's true that it's it's not ideal if they assume I'm cis female either because that will give them incorrect assumptions as well. But the point is that like, unless they know specifically what the circumstances of me are as an individual, then they're not going to be able to help me effectively. So there's no preferable circumstance. And clearly, um, the very nature of a trans person transitioning is that they don't want to be referred to by their birth sex because <laughs> otherwise, why would they transition? So it's it's actually quite common sense, but this is so common. And I find myself either self-excluding from these things 
or just having a lot of stress, unnecessary stress when I do engage with these things. Because often I will just put female and then I will be under stress to be like, oh, I have to sit past whatever because they've set up this thing to create this stressful circumstance, which is, is completely unnecessary. So I, I, that's kind of a slightly off topic, but I just think it's so common that if you don't have a person that's affected by the issues um, actually in the room <laughs> and ask them about what the things that stress them out, you know, you, you, you will, you'll never know. And so you'll just keep doing it. And, and that I find is, is I can like draw a little bit of analogy because this is like the, the area I'm most um, interested in is, is how we, how we create categories of knowledge and how those categories of knowledge are connected to, you know, relations of power and who matters and whose knowledge matters. Um, when it comes to race, uh, some of the work I'm, I'm doing uh, sometimes is, is around asking people about their, um, how they identify racially as part of medical intake. And, you know, there's no, like race is not a genetic category. There's, there's nothing in our genes that you can test to say that, you know, you're racially X or Y, that, you know, there are more differences between people in the same racial category than outside. And so um, there's that issue of like, why is that the case? And you're right that it can result in bad healthcare outcomes because, for example, one thing I was working on is that um, uh, thalassemia, which is sort of a, a blood trait that a lot of people in um, South Asia and the African continent have, which is basically a inherited trait to, um, to make the outcomes of, of getting malaria less, less worse. And so it has become one example of sickle cell anemia. And that is often said that, you know, only, only people who are, who are racialized as black get sickle cell anemia. But that is absolutely not the case because people in Southern Greece and in India also have that because malaria is, is high there. And it's seen as a positive trait there because it, it helps you avoid um, getting malaria. And so there's a lot of, a misdiagnosis because that assumption is just permeated in the medical community and people will ask you, you know, okay, you can't have thalassemia because you are white. And, and that's not the case, but they have used categorizations around race to make these assumptions, which might not, you know, actually um, apply. And it's really dangerous as well. I mean, it sounds dangerous in that case, and it's always dangerous, you know, um, because you 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 give that individual that is experiencing this, um, you know, um, poor assumption, right? Um, incorrect assumption um, to then have a reason to distrust the entire medical establishment, you know. So, and it's just rife with trans people. Again, I'll only speak from my own experience, but um, it's rife, like. I don't really trust. I tend to, for poorer almost certainly, but I tend to take personal responsibility for my healthcare and my healthcare choices because I simply do not have access to medical professionals that I feel like have the expertise and the knowledge that I can trust them. Um, and it's so often still to this day, even though it's better than it was, you know. Um, couched in this concept of gatekeeping um, rather than actually just trying to help people to transition. Um, and so um, 
I <laughs> want to help myself to transition. You know, I'm not interested in gatekeeping. Um, so the doctors are typically a barrier <laughs> for me to do what I want to do. Um, so you create this oppositional existence and it's, it's incredibly negative because, you know, hopefully I'm making safe decisions, but I could be not, right? I could be making medical, um, you know, um, errors um, that could be costly um, because, of course, I'm not a medical professional, but I'm put into the position where that feels like, whether it's the right thing or not, someone could argue with me that I'm being stupid, but the point is that it feels like the best option that I have available, and that's what you don't want because then you become disenfranchised from even trusting doctors for anything, and, you know, outside of trans issues you know we know this is an issue for women in general with medical health establishment of, of not being trusted with symptoms and being diagnosed you know with say depression or something um when there could be um likely a much more specific um ailment that that is had but the the doctors are just not listening <laughs> um and so then you have lots of women that don't trust doctors and then then then, then that causes further issues so um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bloody big problem. <laughs> I, um, I think that it, it also, it, in a sort of unfortunate way, feeds into the whole project of austerity and neoliberalism, um, because what the government would want is to kind of offload all of their duties, public service duties around healthcare to individuals. And so it's like this idea that, you know, um, that unfortunately you feel like you have to, you've been sort of disenfranchised from, from the system. So you feel like you have to take care of, of your health, but that also is, I think, a platform or an objective of the state to, to say that, you know, everyone is responsible for their own health care and you can kind of, you know, do make changes so that you can be in perfect health for yourself. And that fits into the whole idea of like a a good worker and a good citizen and 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 that kind of thing and so it, it feeds into that as well i mean but it's it's also like specifically with i mean i i guess you know specifically with this conservatism as, as a philosophy in general it's complete hypocrisy anyway because they tend to um initiate um laws that will um control <laughs> the bodies of marginalized people <laughs> um and so actually it's using power <laughs> to limit the options of people that are not part of the majority um, or the, at least the um, the power majority. Um, and, you know, it, it, it makes it a cudgel. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a lie, isn't it? It's like, you're, you're supposed to be independent as long as you're doing what we tell you to do. So it's a false independence because it's the second that whatever the orthodoxy is, is not, um, you know, and, and those orthodoxies obviously shift. You know, they're, they're not they're not like stable, but whatever the the orthodoxy of the, the ruling class might be, um, that if you're not fulfilling that appropriately, then you'll be you'll be you know controlled by the state, um, and the hands of the state will be the medical system a lot of the time. You know, so we see this with bodily autonomy issues, especially for for reproductive reproductive issues but for, for trans people as well about accessing healthcare in the first place. Oh, sorry, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, if, if we if we were to just look at what's going on in the media at the moment, I mean, you, you constantly see this narrative around trans people are some kind of risk. There's always associated with trans people is it's always negative. They're a risk, they're a danger. 
etc so you know when it comes to doing a risk assessment how, how do you you know do a risk assessment based on real potential risks rather than you know this kind of narrative that oh because you're trans there's a risk and we're going to look into that aspect what about the fact that somebody might be dangerous because of some criminal activity or or, or some other kind of risk factor in their life you know so I kind of struggle with that because that that that's the kind of thing that would prevent me from even using a service like this because there's going to be all these kind of assumptions about me. Yeah, I'm trans. I think that's fascinating as well. And I was wondering, like Tina, you mentioned the concept of your your work being based on like the evidence of like um, you know gender based violence being um, instances, and and you said your specialism about um, you know. In, in, in close relationships, I can't remember the exact phrase you used. Um, and, you know, what causes the, these, I'm, I'm interested in what the evidence that we have um, the, of what causes gender-based violence in the first place. And are we using that evidence of what causes people to be victimized or to be um, victims of gender-based violence? Um, are we using the evidence um, from the research in actually service um, pr provision. <laughs> yeah, I, I should say that that um, the way that I, I kind of frame a lot of a lot of my work is um, one of the things that I found in the a book that that I wrote, which came out as a while ago, um, "Sex, Consent, and Justice: A New Feminist Framework" with Edinburgh University Press. I I tease out this. Um, this, this tension I felt in the Me Too movement, um, wh wherein uh, a lot of the, the Me Too movement itself could be quite uh, transphobic in some um, senses, and that they often were very carceral. So a lot of their um, solutions had to do with, you know, increased surveillance, um, you know, mandatory imprisonment, um, all of these very, very carceral kind of um, uh, solutions. And then you had Black Lives Matter, which had a very sort of restorative justice arc. And I found it really strange that a lot of times supporters of the Me Too movement would also say Black Lives Matter, but then it would be like, well, unless you are supportive of restorative justice, how can you, you know, support Black Lives Matter? And so my whole thing around that was like looking at those structures and saying, okay, we're talking about intimate partner violence and what we need to do about it. We have to take a restorative approach where we're attacking the systems of misogyny and patriarchy and, and systems of violence and inequality <clears throat> and injustice and racism and, you know, heteronormativity, that, that those are the things that we need to attend to. And that transphobia is very much a part of that. And it feeds into that in ways that, create these confected moral panics like Vicky were talking about of risk assessments where this, yeah, this confected idea of a trans woman infiltrating a, you know, quote unquote, women only space. Like, it just seems like, like they've just pulled that out of thin air. It's, it's not, supported in any evidence there's there's no 
you know, there's no sense of that being a, a problem in any evidentiary sense. And then it becomes an issue of um, producing and, and just trying to cultivate a moral panic. And I think that institutions, when they're doing a risk assessment, will have, have you know, just in terms of like the rhetoric and the discourse and the power that it, it becomes factual, even though it's not. And um, risk assessments are then based on that sort of, you know, rather than looking at systems of inequality and helping people and why people are disenfranchised, it becomes a, oh, we just can't be part of this moral panic because it's going to affect our funding or it's going to make us look bad publicly. And I think that it's just become a bit of a, you know, just a, an argument that's that's been used to gain, you know, political traction, um, you know, which is often as soon as something really bad materially happens, you know, people on the right just jump to, you know, trying to demonize a particular minority group, whether it's immigrants, whether it's people who identify as trans, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's as though some people are more valid than others. You know, you, you, if you if you're a minority for whatever reason, you know, it's always going to come back to oh, there's, there's some kind of risk associated with that minority. You know, if you if you're if you're a white heterosexual, forgive me for saying that, but you, you're probably not going to face these kind of things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that that is one of the the things that I do on the science side is that you know the way that you know imperial colonial you know, heteronormative, masculine, Western science organizes itself as in these categories. And, and the categories are, are put into a hierarchy. And you see that with gender, you see that with sexuality, you see that with race, you see that with class. And that, you know, part of some of the work that I'm trying to do around feminist science studies, or looking at, looking at, at conceptual transness to destabilize the way that we think about sexuality or the way that we think about government or education that um, destroying those hierarchies are, are kind of the goal here. So before we did this um, podcast, we, we obviously had some chats around some of the topics we were talking about. And I think I remember one of the things we spoke about, which you, you had mentioned, Tina, was around the, you know, the construction of victims. Could you could you just explain what that was about? Because I think it was a really important point. I don't fully remember all the details, but can you can you just go into a little bit around how that is constructed, and then you know it kind of ties into authorities and police and all that kind of stuff. I know that's this is part of your area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> if I'm if I'm reading correctly, that um, the issue of of um, who is a victim and who is the aggressor when it comes to issues around sex, um, fitting it into a conversation around consent and how those categories can be very much gendered. Um, and so sometimes if you, if you play into this idea of, of you know, the victim, the question becomes, you know, are, you, are you denying that person agency? Um, then there is the issue of you know, particularly when we make the hierarchy of, of genders, um, we often have, you know, the feminized victim in particular. 
and that then you know is they are denied agency in their own um, context, but also that sometimes that victim category is more structural. So you don't really have agency in structures that are disempowering. Um, and I think that that is another issue. Is that sort of the area that you were talking about? Yeah. 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 I, and I think that that's, you know, how we construct a perfect victim is another um, issue that I've done a lot of work on, you know, when it comes to gender-based violence, that if you take it to um, the criminal injustice system, what often happens is that if you don't take the boxes of being a perfect victim of like, you know, you weren't wearing a short skirt, you weren't walking down the street at night, um, you reported right away, um, it was a stranger in a dark alley, um, you know, you are not, um, you don't have a lot of sex, you, you know, all of these things that um, you have to meet those, those, you know, tick those boxes, really, to be considered good enough to enter into the criminal justice system. To be taken seriously, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then even then, um, oftentimes, you know, you are re-victimized and, um, you know, it's, it's just a terrible ordeal. And so I think that the system is sort of set up in that way, and it's because it is a gendered system uh, and it's a racialized system. And I sort of look towards, you know, a lot of work in, in restorative justice, um, particularly indigenous systems of restorative justice, uh, when it comes to gender-based violence, to look at ways in which we're not locking people up and throwing away the key, where we're really looking at, you know, what are the causes of the violence? How can we address it? How, we, how can we get people the resources that they need to change? And it is a, a really difficult conversation, but I think that the way that we construct the victim is one way in which we can sort of point to it saying that is not working um, and, and we need to, to change things. So in, in terms of restorative justice, how do you kind of reverse that system? Yeah, yeah. So, so restorative justice, you know, is a, is a system that a number of countries have sort of adopted it in, um, in, you know, sort of more petty crimes or for youth crimes. And usually, it, I mean, there's a number of different options that you can have. You can have like reparative boards. You can have, you know, sit down kind of mediation. Um, there are sort of healing circles that you can you can have, which would involve the offender and the um, the survivor, which don't have to be face to face. And you know there are provisions, for example, like someone to stand in for the survivor if they don't feel like they want to do it. But it, it becomes an issue of um, taking responsibility for um, what you have done of you know meeting certain criteria that is agreed upon by the survivor and perhaps the offender's family so it's very much you know they are responsible to the community and you know there's often friends and family that are there as well it's sort of a longer process and there have been some very good outcomes where you know in in the criminal justice system survivors don't it's not them that are representing themselves. It's the state versus, you know, the the um, alleged offender. 
And so they don't get to, you know, have their story heard in a lot of ways. They, they might want, you know, an apology. They might want some kind of, of um, recompense. And so restorative justice allows you to do that. Um, it's been used in Canada and Australia and New Zealand and the States as well. And the outcomes, you know, the, the sort of, sort of statistics are, are quite good in terms of survivors feeling heard, feeling that they had, um, they were able to get some kind of outcome that they felt comfortable with, um, even after going through the criminal justice system as well. So if they did something, you know, uh, along those lines. And so it is inspired in a lot of ways by Indigenous communities. Um, who have been using that for centuries. Uh, and I think that it is a much better way. And the outcomes for the offender are, are much better as well in terms of reoffense and in terms of, you know, being able to just sort of um, move back into society in, in some, some way. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the UK, we, we've seen a complete collapse in conviction rates for, you know, serious crime like, like these. So. I mean, do you, how do you see that kind of playing into what, what you're just talking about there? Because you know, if you, if you look if you look at the rates of convictions and even cases even taken to court, they've actually over the past few years in the UK they've completely collapsed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the reasons are behind that, but it's it seems as though you know the the evidence level has been altered or something to actually take these cases through to court. Yeah, and, and I think that it really is because of the way that it's structured, because it has to be a, you know, the, the level of evidence that has to be there. The idea of the he said, she said that often happens is based on this idea of consent. Did they, you know, was there a reasonable expectation on the part of the alleged offender that consent was given? Um, and And that juries, if it's a jury trial, they tend to internalize a lot of gender scripts and make assumptions about the alleged victim. Um, I think that it's just structured in a way that uh, it, it it makes it d- difficult to get a conviction. And then, and then also you have the question of like conviction to what end so that, you know, you can just lock away someone for a particular amount of time and then let them out without any supports mm-hmm. in which case, you know, you're you're not sort of cultivating the kind of society I think people want to have. It just seems like such a counterintuitive way to set up a system to deal with um, deal with any kind of gender based violence. In terms of wanting a society that that doesn't have to deal with gender based violence, it seems like the opposite. You know, thing that you should you should do. Yeah, and something something else that always kind of made me quite curious about this was the way religion plays into all this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think that that is, um, you know, interesting that, that, that you do have these systems of law and other institutions that are based on kind of a more Western Christian kind of um, framework. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I'm, I'm an atheist. I think I've been an atheist since I was like five years old. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, that critique of, of systems that have internalized values that are based in religion that are left uninterrogated, I think can be 
um, quite quite a problem as well. Yeah, I mean, especially religious attitudes towards LGBT people. Yes. I mean, we're demonized within most religions. Yes. So that has to play into, you know, some of these problems that, you know, we're going back to the provision of service. Yeah. Demonized demonized or fetishized like the hijra community in in india so so that you know you do have those those senses and i think that it is interesting when you are talking about uh the trans community and the way that that community is constructed uh in a sort of category way how it differs in different different countries um but then of course you know we we do have that kind of judeo-christian approach uh here which is you know, built into our, our institutions, and so that you you have that throughout. Yeah. So the man the minorities are treated differently purely based on their difference. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating as well because it goes back to what we we're saying before about categories. You know, I it occurs to me that so often <clears throat> discrimination against trans people or gender diverse people if they don't identify as trans, um, which they may well not, but you know this conception of real trans or, you know, um, or just like, you know, whatever, like a masculine woman or a feminine man or whatever. And this desire, I suppose, for hard and fast categories. And I think this can come from within the community as well as without, outside of the community. Um, but, you know, what the hell is that about? Like it, it's it's kind of fascinating. I mean, I think it's about that we're all pigeonholed. You know, we're we're forced to be pigeonholed to some degree, and then that pressure, that exquisite pressure, um, you know, does push people into these different brackets. But of course, there just is ambiguity, um, and if you're gender non-conforming in some sense, right, whatever the broadest depth definition of that could be you know if you're not fitting a heteronormative gender role um then you're you know you're not gonna if you're not fitting that mold then you know some degree there's going to be some um, ambiguity there um and you know humans aren't hard and fast like even the people that are able <laughs> to pretend to be super straight and super cis um, you know, people aren't actually super consistent, um, even if they are like cis and straight. Um, so, you know, I, I guess, Tina, can you talk about categories and, you know, do you have a view on can we fix it? Like the way that I look at it is like I'm a little bit um, crestfallen sometimes because I feel like I don't know how to get people to snap out of this belief in absolute truth of category. You know, because my view on categories is that they're useful <clears throat> labeling tools to understand the world. You know, so we see what I would argue, this is just an opinion, but what I would argue is we see a world around us that is relative chaos. You know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. That's my view. And, and I am also an atheist. So I don't believe that there's some creator that has given order um, to things and has made things the way that they are for a specific reason. I it seems to me that things just are and then we make of them what we make of them um and so to understand and to kind of impose some form of order on the world so that we can understand it better and kind of survive and hopefully thrive and and, and do things that we want to do with our lives 
you know, we come up with categories like sex and gender and um, race and, you know, whatever else that we believe in. Um, and to the degree that those are useful, like, fine, you know, um, you know, sex is useful, especially when you're talking about reproduction. So I don't think it's very, like, controversial to say that that's a useful category that should be kept. But does that mean that it's, you know, as so many people would love to hammer home, like, does that mean it's binary and absolute? No, no, no it doesn't. <laughs> um, and um, so can we improve, like, how we think about these categories? <laughs> yeah, uh, like, a number of things come to mind. Um, first and foremost is sort of the the connection of, you know, the way that our system of knowledge are constructed into um, settler colonialism, you know, and sort of going to, you know, um, you know, to the new world and, you know, seeing, uh, uh, you know, cultures that accept diversity and that are okay with that sort of chaos and then saying that, no, 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 we have to impose these structures of knowledge on them because they are the civilized conceptual structures. And, and, and they are really, socially constructed in the sense that, you know, it's it's a way to deal with um, a world that is, is chaotic. Um, and I think that what could have been heuristic devices, so like just shortcuts to make your way through the world have become into, have become these ossified categories that are related to um, interests. And so it's like, what do these, whose interests do these categories serve? And it is, you know, people who are generally in power. And I think that that is so unfortunate and limiting and actually makes me quite sad because, you know, if you, if you go into, you know, different disciplines and some of the newer research coming out in every discipline, it's that, you know, oh, these, these binary categories that we've constructed are just not reflective of the way the world works. And not only are they not reflective, and so we're not really getting quality knowledge, they're also limiting uh, in terms of what we can do and who we can be. And why would you want to limit yourself in terms of, you know, having these, these two choices when there's so much diversity in nature? It's kind of like, you know, why are we acting in ways that the world is just showing us it's not that way. It's it's just not the way that works. Um, and so it's that, you know, I think appealing to people's sort of sense of adventure and excitement and creativity and imagination, that there's so much we can do with, you know, categories and, and just interrogating them and destroying them in some ways. And I think that one of the, you know, um, uh, trans, trans uh, feminist thought within the black community in particular, some of the work that's going um, on in that area where um, black trans scholars in particular are working in ways that try to deconstruct race and sexuality and gender together. I think it has some of the most exciting um, research uh, in that area and I think um, that's where we should sort of look to for inspiration and for for a sense of solidarity. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, this is just an anecdote, but you you inspired me to, to share it just because in my experience of transitioning and, um, you know, kind of going from, you know, an experience of 
basically no marginalization at all and kind of like going oh, okay great more 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 fun for me but like um I have found that and this is like this is the common talking point um but I found it <laughs> very much true like you just look at this country and you look at the politicians and you look at the feminists that are able to talk about trans issues um with intelligence and care they tend not to be white <laughs> like you tend to see that and you tend to see the ones getting caught up the most in the tough stuff they tend to be a bit whiter um now i'm, I'm as white as the driven snow so um you know whatever but like um that's been something i've really noticed and it's it's something that is clearly like is is the intersection is understanding intersectional feminism actually understanding it from in here um that his is 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 able to actually do that so i, I guess i i'm expressing excitement by by people actually doing research to think about those things in combination because i think that would be so much more useful so if we if we were to just think a minute around how do we how how should we kind of solve these problems you know what going forwards what in your view tina is the, is the kind of the solution to gender-based violence and you know what needs to change um for me i think and and this will probably not happen in my lifetime but having a robust public education system in which sexuality and violence and and, and gender race is taught in very critical, you know, evidentiary, reflexive ways um, in which, you know, students are kind of involved in interrogating all of these categories, learning about the history, about, you know, what sex sort of means, how it works, um, how relationships work and how they are structured, um, that, you know, it, 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 that those kind of you know teaching sexual ethics, uh, I think that that has to be the beginnings of really trying to reconstruct and to you know cultivate a more progressive culture. Uh, whether or not that will happen, because I think that it's probably going to be you know we can't even get sort of basic sex ed in schools accepted and so it's that idea of okay if you can't if you can't sort of get get people at the beginning to really um, challenge them to rethink things you know how is that supposed to happen then it becomes an issue of okay groups like fgen and you know pushing for policy change and pushing for re-education and pushing for uh, media reform and uh, pushing back against transphobia um, seems to be sort of where we are. But I think that for real change to happen, it has to happen at the grassroots and sort of when people are younger and you know, making those changes then. Yeah, so so what I guess what you're talking about there is educating people so we actually reduce the amount of gender-based violence uh, from its, you know, source. And then, you know, we, we seem to be dealing with the problem currently in terms of we have all these services that we can provide people and we're talking around inclusion in those services, but the the real problem is the is the root source of why why is there so much violence? Yeah. Um, you know, how do we how if you solve that problem? Obviously, the other problem diminishes too. Um, I don't think we're ever going to live in a society where there's none. I think this is a fascinating topic as well. It's like 
with this question of why why are people violent in the first place? Why are people sexually violent? In addition, more specifically, you know, what's the animating you know factor there? Because you know, I think we've talked about categories, and I feel like it's I'm not accusing anyone here of that, but I think it's often tempting and uh, easy trap to fall into is when we talk about gender um, construction and sex construction. Um, that we focus on female <laughs> and we focus on um, women and girls and we focus on like women's problems and, and all of this sort of stuff. And then you can have other marginalized groups as well that kind of fall into that. You know, it's this concept of the, I think often it's the concept of the subjects and objects. And so we think of the objects of the issue and the objects being the, the, the non um subject and the subject of a patriarchy is a male, um, straight male person. So, um, and in our culture, especially white. Um, and, um, and so we forget to look at the white male straight guy, like what the fuck's even going on with him? Um, and what's the construction of his selfhood? And why is that intersecting with violence and sexual violence? Like, where's that even coming from? You know, if we move past the biological essentialism as far as men are born to be violent or what have you, um, you know, perhaps that's true, but it seems unlikely, um, even if, you know, whatever, you could say there's some biological factors. I would say there probably are biological factors, but, um, you know, what is that construction and what's, you know, what, what do they want? You know, that's the thing I think about sometimes. Like, I can't possibly imagine a re reason I would want to be violent or sexually violent. I can't even categorically think of why I would want to do that because it seems just so horrible for everyone involved. Like, I can't possibly imagine why you would desire that. Um, and so to understand why someone would think that that was their best way to get what like power right it seems like it would be their way to get power to get control to get like dominance maybe or whatever and then we have to say like okay well if my premise is correct that that's what they're seeking why <laughs> why do they even care? like i say myself i want personal power i want to be able to choose how i live my life i want to be safe i don't want to be happy and i want to have fulfilling experiences and relationships so i want the power to be able to do that you know so that does mean that I, I want to have some degree of independence in that way um but I don't care particularly about controlling anyone else I don't actually genuinely care that much like I would like to make it so that people won't hurt me and so if I'm in a circumstance where I fear that people might want to hurt me then I may want to be able to control them in some way of like calling the police or something but again that's a circumstance where they so they want to hurt me for some reason or they want to like do something that I would feel would be harmful. So even if it's just stealing my property, that would I would feel that would harm me. Um, so, you know, again, it goes back to, to the original thing. It's like, why do they want to do that in the first place? Um, and I don't know. I just wish we could like, have some sort of, you know, <laughs> what do people want? Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, that there's two sort of things that come to mind. It's that, that issue of, you know, contemporary white masculinity is having, you know, being rooted in patriarchy, misogyny and, and you know, socializing um, young men into violence um, as being a, you know, something that is, is positive in contemporary culture. So there's that aspect. And I think there's also an aspect of looking really critically at capitalism and 
and the fact that, you know, when you have a disempowered set of people who have been socialized into violence and are not having the material needs met um, when it just comes to basic, you know, access to healthcare, access to uh, a home, access to, you know, a job that they find fulfilling, um, to education, to a family that is materially supported, um, that kind of inequality that's built into capitalism can do a lot <clears throat> towards making people more likely to be violent, uh, I think. And then you have a government that filters that animosity and anger into focusing on another group, whether it's a racialized group, whether it's um, whether it's people who are trans, whether it's, you know, generalized homophobia, um, that there's those dual issues that you've got this construction of masculinity that is really cultural. You've got uh, transphobia, which is also culturally constructed. And then you've got really large gaps in material equality that are then, you know, used to to just, you know, push a kind of identity-based animosity. When you see the kind of direction that a lot of countries are going in the moment towards the right, towards religious right, you you know, and then you you look at the stats when all these things are getting worse. You, you, there has to be some kind of relationship there. Oh, yeah. I, I think that if you sort of go back and sort of look at times of intense material inequality, you get um, a, a more pronounced demonization of some category of, of people or another. Um, and it is often a directed animosity. So it'll just be, you know, instead of dealing with or attending to the way that our economy is structured to produce like immense wealth for a handful of people at the expense of everyone else, instead of, you know, dealing with uh, changing that, we're going to just kind of filter it into everyone's anger into one particular, onto one particular group or another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very obvious when you look at it in those terms. Immigrants too, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, do, do you have any kind of projects that you're working on recently? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a a, a few things. Um, I'm working on um, the the work that I'm doing around sexual ethics. Um, the uh, I'm doing a, a small grant that I got to uh, work with a local artist um, to do some workshops with survivors of gender-based violence um, and to just sort of introduce the model of sexual ethics that I talk about in my book and to get some feedback around it and look at, you know, how um, particularly students in the humanities that I'm sort of focusing on, um, how they might envision sexual ethics differently. So outside of models of consent. And so I'm, I'm working on, on that right now. Um, please, please feel free to plug the book. Okay. Yes, yep. <laughs> uh, Sex, Consent and Justice, a New Feminist Framework. Um, Edinburgh University Press published it. Okay. And so I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, I'm waiting on the results of a larger grant looking at um, 
doing some workshops and interviews with survivors around um, restorative justice and alternative forms of justice and what they might envision and doing it in a participatory arts uh, format. Um, and on the science side, I'm, I'm doing some work around um, intersectional identity and COVID and access to medical care. And so people who are multiply uh, marginalized, uh, what was their experience of um, accessing healthcare during COVID if they contracted it? You know, what, what were their experiences and doing some interviews uh, around there and putting that together. And the last one, I've got quite a few, but the, the last one I'll say is um, around uh, the experience of international students uh, and accessing resources and um, being able to do their research under lockdown, particularly when they are surveilled and the university acts as a kind of soft border. So looking at the politics of immigration and policing around international students. Well, I feel, I feel as though we've barely scratched the surface <laughs> of the depth of your knowledge on some of these topics. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Manny, do you have any any final words, um, Violet? Yeah, it's just um hasn't it? Um it's a bit depressing, I think. It's um, it. It is. I, I, yeah. <laughs> um I guess like it seems to all be about fear, doesn't it? It's like the construction of of focusing our anxieties is like onto whatever's convenient. <laughs> The thing that really occurred to me, and I don't know if we can talk about it quickly before we wrap up, but one of the things that occurred to me as well is that, like, the the kind of ruling majority, um, whatever, um, tends to, you know, exoticize and obsess about their marginalized people. Like, that seems to be an incredibly strong, like, vein. And I don't know if, maybe that's a large topic, but um you know it's it seems odd to me because you know ostensibly these people mostly men um mostly white men <laughs> have constructed a system that ostensibly like benefits them predominantly over anyone that isn't a white man um and then they've also structured it so that like they've moralized that like fraternizing with the lesser people you know so people that have been racialized or people have been sexualized and uh, made a sexual minority uh, be that sexuality being homosexual or being transgender for example and um or just being a woman <laughs> as well um and um and then it's like you know I don't know. This is like misogyny is the most insane thing in the world. It's like I, 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 I still, I still go and I still go slightly insane when I like hurt myself by like looking at like misogynistic guys, and then like they seem to hate women, right? Like misogyny, but like they're also obsessed um, with sleeping with women that they hate, and is oppositional things like. I don't know, my brain just melts. Like, why would you construct a system where you're stigmatizing yourself but doing the things that you're clearly obsessed with doing? Um, you know, what the hell is that about? Like, surely it shows that everyone is diverse, right? So these guys that are making themselves this, this supposed, like, identity of 
you know, authority and stability or whatever, right? Um, responsibility, you know, ruggedness, stoicism, whatever the heck you want to like categorize it as. But then they're not that, obviously. So then it constantly breaks and then they're constantly breaking their own rules that they made. Um, and like, why don't they just, why do, why don't you just change the rules? It would benefit you as well as all the people you're, you're marginalizing. Like, what's, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think a lot of men, you know, who, who kind of display those behaviors understand that they are actually trapped in that system that probably wasn't of their making, but they're they're in it and they probably don't realize it. They probably don't know how to get out of it. Yeah, it's sort of like that, you know, going into like Freudian psychoanalysis to, to you know, look at, you know, yeah. how we how we kind of construct those things where we're attracted to the things that we hate and that idea of like the the, the monstrous, um, which is sort of constructed in psychoanalysis as well, and how we have that category, um, you know, how that can actually be an emancipatory category and trying to, you know, bring that into the framework. One, one other thing that I, I just wanted to, to mention sort of as the last thing is that um, um, the idea of stress ha has been sort of a theme, I think, that we've talked about how like fear and stress and worry <laughs> And just the, you know, in, in some of the work I'm doing around um, race and and um, how that works functions in medicine, it sort of makes me think a lot about how stress can increase your allostatic load and it can be a big factor in making um, certain groups have negative health outcomes and how stress can be sort of a factor of, um, you know, making it so that you are more likely to you know, have diabetes and to have heart disease and to, you know, have these other conditions that stress is a big factor, you know, and, and, and I think that that has to be considered as well. Like, what are you doing when you are making a person constantly have to be in a state of fear um, about being able to access services, being able to walk down the street, um, un, you know, unperturbed, uh, that, that that stress on marginalized communities have tangible material outcomes on on health. And and uh, I think that that is something that isn't talked about enough as well. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I experienced that as well. Like uh, my early transition experiences, you know, I would be likely to be kind of treated poorly um, for standing out, you know, like typically would be maybe like young guys like shouting at me or something um and these sorts of things to make you feel stressed um and not say or like just being really creepy again it's like the weird specialization of like treating you like like at one point i had this guy like taking photos of me in the supermarket and god knows you know what exactly goes on in his head to make him want to do that um but like um and then like i get further in my transition and it's like things kind of stop happening like it's that doesn't really happen anymore but um it's still in my head <laughs> and so I still feel like I'm in an, I I'm it's sort of slowly maybe it has improved but like I still feel unsafe <laughs> um and you know you so I, I guess I'm saying like you remember these things like you, you you remember that you're not as good as other people because that was like happened to you before you know um and you kind of it's like something you feel can happen again even if it isn't you know um yeah, I mean, the, the fear and stress that I experienced, you know, early on in transition, 
you know, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It does change your behavior. You know, you be, you become kind of more of a stuck at home person and you, you, you kind of, you know, withdraw from things because of the fear. I mean, it takes, it takes quite a while to build your confidence to the point where, you know, you're no longer doing that. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a definitely a real thing. Yeah. It really is. So, um, great discussion. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully, Tina, you'll be available for the other podcasts we're going to do on this topic. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks so much for coming on today and having a chat. Thanks for having me. It was really yeah. Good. yeah, and uh, yeah, to to our dear listener, um, listeners, hopefully, um, we will, yeah, we will be doing some more podcasts on this topic. And please stay tuned and subscribe, um, and we'll, we will catch up with you soon. So. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye for now.